perspective. And welcome to the Table of Perspective, where we take a deeper look into how the internal narrative of an individual determines his response to life itself and all it entails. Today, I am your host, Bula, and we'll be doing part two of A Game Ranger Remembers. It's a book written by Bruce Bryden, who was a conservationist and biologist, and we'll continue straight into this right after the first song. Enjoy. Oh, come on. Forget that money, cause it got with us. I could go beat the blind, like I don't need the blind. I could go bleed the blind, or I could lead the blind. Yeah, everywhere I bring the heat, cause it was cold. Got no one to do it, we was all alone. Every Christmas, Santa missed us, we was broke. Now I get this, gotta get this on my own. Every holiday was not a holiday. Every holiday, nobody got a just to fight to find the faith Every hurt I felt, it fell down on my face I had covered quite a bit about his upbringing and a little bit of his experiences on or in the wild as a young child. And we had gone into a little bit of the part where he had encountered his first large animal or rather problem animal. But before I go straight into that, I just wanted to, I guess, page back a little bit in A Game Ranger Remembers the Forward. It seems that it might appear to be all responsibility and quite a lot of weight and burden of being a conservationist, especially since as a human being, you're technically assisting the environment of the animals around you. But there is a little bit of a different perspective that he offers us in the foreword. It says that it was not all work and no play. The KZD men had been warned to bring their fishing rods. And one day, after rather abortive start to the elephant culling, I called a break and took them to the Oliphant's trail camp. 
Just below the camp, the Olifants River tumbles through a series of rhyolite gorges and into a series of potholes. The nutrient and rich oxygen rich water in the potholes, together with the barrier created by the falls, provide a unique habitat for just about every fish and aquatic predator found in Olifants River. The potholes were the best spot for bream and tigerfish that I had ever encountered. And for extra excitement, there were crocodiles of monstrous size, often up to five meters long or more. Three or four kilometers downstream, where the river is slowed down by a series of rocky shelves before it joins the Litaba to flow into Mozambique, the monsters were slightly less monstrous, hardly ever reaching more than a comparatively puny three or four meters. But there were lots of them, so at one stage, this last stretch of South African water was home to the highest concentration of crocodiles found anywhere in Africa. In any case, because it was Thursday, the trails camp was vacant that night. We got our heads down and the next morning early, we were on the rocks with our rods. The tigers we hooked did their bit in the grand fashion, and in the best tradition of happy endings, lived to tell the tale. Because of course, we put them straight back into the river again. About 10 o'clock, we left for Litaba again to carry on with the culling. That task completed, we headed back to the rest of the camp for our last night together. We sat around the fire and told good stories while nibbling on prime rum steak, dressed in cream and garlic sauce and sliced up a chopping block, all of it washed down with a cold beer or three. Uh, it was a sublime moment and Graham Wiltshire, then the warden of Ndumu, summed it up when he said, Who can beat this for a lifestyle? Catch tiger fish in the morning, shoot elephants in the afternoon, and end up with beer and steaks. None of us knew it, but Graham had only a short time left on Earth. A few weeks later, he came to a tragic end in an aircraft accident. I do not believe, however, that any of us who were there that night would ever forget his words. He said all that needed saying. This memory has helped to shape this book. So relax. Imagine you're sitting somewhere in the Kruger National Park a little after nightfall and enjoy the stories. Everyone knows that the best ones are told around a campfire when your world is bounded by the flickering edges of the fire's light and you sit on a rickety folded chair, wriggling toes that are sore from the day's walking, your well-worn jersey keeping the cold away from your sweated out body, a can of ice-cold beer sending frisions down your face as you roll it down or against your forehead, and that's when good tales come creeping out, while the night creatures sing their unforgettable accompaniment from somewhere out in the great darkness that falls so swiftly over Africa when each day's sun has set. So in the first chapter of how it all began, I'm going to jump straight into the part where he encounters the culling of a problem animal. Um, and so he goes on in page five, a problem animal of a different kind in my younger years was a large and ferocious Afrikaner bull that seemed to have a personal dislike for me. What made him even more sinister in my eyes was that he was yellow instead of red. Like all the other Afrikaner cattle I knew about. And at that moment, I didn't know yet that in fact, yellow Afrikaners were not uncommon. My daily journeys to Opa's house was frequently turned into impromptu long distance tracks to avoid the attentions of this demon of my early years. If he was in one of the camps on the route between our houses, I would have to make a detour. Because of this monster in bovine clothing spotted me, no matter how far away I might be, he would run at me. Charge is perhaps slightly too strong to describe that terrifying approach, but even as a four-year-old, I knew it wasn't because he wanted me to rub his forehead. This unpleasant behavior taught me another fault lesson. 
though that animals can instill fear in human beings and also it is quite impossible or rather it is quite possible to actively hate a particular animal. The passing of time didn't mellow this chap and for four years he routinely terrorized me whenever he had the opportunity. I wasn't the only one to be the target of his spleen. He was so aggressive that even some of the adult cattle herders refused to work near him. He got away with this antisocial behavior for a long time because he had one great virtue. He fathered a long string of first-class calves. Still, all good things come to an end. Eventually, hardly any of the herders were willing to come near him so that the other cattle in his herd had to be moved along by a vehicle. By this time, Opa had had enough of this troublemaker and his good calves and he chose the animal game culling as the right time to take the appropriate steps. There were about 600 springbok and blessbok on the farm. During my first winter then, I had learned another important lesson from Opa May about carrying capacity and the need to reduce the size of the game population at regular intervals to avoid destruction of the habitat. The annual culling coincided with the main domestic slaughter of the year and always took place in winter, which meant that I was invariably present because of the mid-year holidays. It was not just after my 8th birthday, however, that Opa let me take a full part in culling operation. Under his strict tutelage, of course, the proceedings would open with the slaughtering of a pig and an ox. And after that, Opa May and I would shoot up some 60 or 70 blessbok and springbok, all in the same day. Some of the animals would be given away and the rest would be turned into a year's supply of boltong and sausage. Opa was, as it seemed, happy with the way I had handled myself during the first tentative essays at Cullings. Needless to say, Opa was perfectly aware of my long-standing dispute with the yellow bull. Or perhaps I should say the yellow bull's dispute with me. And so I was delighted when he asked me whether I would like to take on the task of raiding my old enemy for the attentions of the lady sausage machine. Of course, I accepted the offer. Payback time at last. When did we go? I asked immediately, assuming we would go out in the truck to shoot the bull. But, as always, Opa May saw the task as a way station on my personal learning curve. You go on foot, alone, tomorrow morning, he said. And remember to take a knife to cut his throat after you shot him. The Joseph Rogers I usually carried in my pocket obviously would not be up to this challenge. So the old man armed me with a butcher's knife from the kitchen, together with a handful of cartridges. I had been hoping they would be the long, sleek ones for the 7x57mm Mauser, but they were 22-inch long rifles which he took out of a cardboard Eli box. And I still believe that these were the best 22-inches cartridges ever made. But of course, I am prejudiced because of those little red, yellow and black Eli boxes with the running rabbit on them. They are so vivid and part of my childhood memories. Next morning early, I set off to hunt the yellow bull with my 22 Mauser rifle. As usual, he had come up to me as soon as I came into his sight. But this time I was one up on him. I kept the fence between us and took careful aim from a dead rest on one end of the fence post while he stood snorting and pawing at the ground. Then I fired and he dropped like a stone. I climbed through the fence and slit his throat. We'll continue on with the next part of the story right after the second song. But as you can see, the book does go in quite in depth when it comes to explanations of his experience. And for some it might be a little bit too descriptive, but it really does bring you on ground with the author and you almost feel as though you're there incorporated in the story. So we'll be back in just a moment as we finish with the second song. 
So, continuing on with how it all began, as we finish up with the culling of the beast <laughs> that the author had encountered. And in the previous part, we had just spoken about how he had slit the throat of the animal after he had shot him. And so continuing on, he says that as the blood gushed out, the tragedy of the situation struck me and I cried as only an eight-year-old boy can. I wept until I had no tears left, then pulled myself together and went to collect the farm hands and the truck to bring the yellow bull's massive carcass back to the farmyard. I did not know it then, but I had just passed another examination in the rough and ready curriculum Opa May had prepared for me. I realized the next day, though, that when we went out to shoot the springbok and blessbok, to my surprise and delight, Opa May handed me what he called his monlicht, which before had set out on the hunt. A Mannlicher Skunaver rifle firing the renowned 65 by 5 mm Mauser cartridge. A magic rifle. It was a huge step up from the 22 Mauser and I had felt as if I had been elevated to another plane of existence. It was Opa May's custom to have the culled animals gutted and then laid out under the trees in descending order of magnitude. Those with the least amount of damaged meat being at the top end of the scale, the two best buck, one of each species, went to the minister of the local parish and the ones further down the line to the lesser lights such as the bank manager and the magistrate, and finally to family and friends. That culling stays in my memory for another reason, albeit one less far dramatic than the other things I experienced. The dramatic personae consisted firstly of the pig that was to be slaughtered, and secondly of one Rachane Mohanedi, friend and soulmate of my maternal grandfather, who was generally known as Opa Kuku because of his love for fighting cocks. Opa Kuku and Rachane were nearer to being brothers than anything else. They had grown up and grown into maturity together. So at this point, the author goes into a little bit of a story that he had experienced where Generally, the pig that was to be slaughtered would be killed by Opa, May, and there was the, his friends that would come around and have some chateau or some brandy. And what actually had happened was in the, I guess, drunken state, one of them had hit the other on the head with a hammer, as you would do to the pig. And thankfully, the only person that had died had been hit, <laughs> and the other had lived the long life of memories of having basically killed a friend but that's again another part of how this book really does throw you in the thick end of what it is like to be out in the fault so that's all for me i hope that you enjoyed this and again i do advise that you pick this book up whether you borrow it from a friend or buy it for yourself or maybe gift it to someone who does enjoy the fault and the open air living I think it would be something very enjoyable, especially for Christmas time, New Year's, whenever you have a moment to pick up a good read. This is something that I would advise. So do have an enjoyable day further. And that is all from me. Cheers.
Ho, 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 ho. Merry Christmas, everybody. Wishing you a jolly good festive season from yours truly. Spike us delicious. And the What's the Topic crew. Boop, 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 boop. Active FM. Active FM.